important is praying daily to you? Uh, some recent research from the Pew organization found that in some parts of West Africa and the Middle East, more than 80% of the people pray every day. 80%. By contrast, when you get to Western Europe, the average is about 10% of the people pray every day. Now, America is somewhere in the middle. America, in uh, general, 55% of the people in America say that they pray every single day. So clearly the majority of our country thinks prayer is important, but on the other hand, many of us struggle. Uh, we wonder, like, are my prayers working? Does God hear my prayers? Is there some special formula I should be using? My prayer life seems stale. Is there a way I can change that? How can I pray for maximum effectiveness? How do I get what I really want? So this morning, I'm hoping that I can encourage you a little bit and uh, also equip you in this area of prayer as we take a look at the life of King Hezekiah. You'll notice on the, the black walls on either side, we've got the names of eight different kings. Our series this summer is Turning Points, and we're studying uh, the, the back end of the book of 2 Kings, and this tells the story of the, the people of Judah. They were the, the last remaining people of God, the, the remnants of Israel, and uh, we're watching the slow decline of the people of God as an independent nation as we work our way through uh, this study in 2 Kings. And the first king that we've talked about is King Hezekiah. He's a great king. Among the kings of Judah, among these eight kings, he stands out because he is faithful to God. Uh, he's had a number of turning points in his life. We, we call it turning points because with each king, when they step on the scene, they have a chance to change the direction of their country. And Hezekiah, uh, who has grown up in a land full of idol worship and false gods, he changes the direction that his father had set. And he rids the country of uh, idols and false worship, and he challenges his people to worship only Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. So at the beginning, when he takes the throne at the age of 25, he's off to a magnificent start. First turning point, awesome. Then a few years later, uh, Assyria, who is the, the resident superpower in the world at that time, they come knocking on his door and they demand that he pay a huge tribute, a ransom financially, or else they will destroy his kingdom. And unfortunately, at that turning point, King Hezekiah caves. He pacifies, he tries to, to say, hey, I'm so sorry, here, I'll just get your money. And so he raids the, the king's treasury, the royal treasury, but he also goes to the temple. And he's so desperate to meet the demands of Assyria that he actually takes things out of the temple that belong to God and gives them to help satisfy this ransom that he has to pay. So now he's, he's one out of two on his turning points. And then there's a third turning point. The nation of Assyria uh, destroys the neighboring country of Israel, and then they begin to take over the fortified cities of Hezekiah's country, Judah. And they begin to encroach on his territory, and finally they surround the capital city of Jerusalem, hundreds of thousands of soldiers on his doorstep, and he demands, the king of Assyria demands, either surrender or I will grind you into the dust, just like I have with every other king who thought he could stand up to me. And so uh, last week when John was preaching, we, we learned that King Hezekiah approached this encounter with the Assyrians differently. Here was a third turning point in his career, and this time he chooses to go to God. And uh, so we're going to start with uh, Hezekiah's prayer that we, we covered last week, but because it's really the starting point for where we go today, uh, 
we need to go back a little bit, and we're just going to touch on that. So this morning, uh, th- the title is God Answers Prayer. It's a little bit of a spoiler alert. Hezekiah turns to God, and, and God answers his prayer. But I think that's a message that we need to hear today as well. So let's take a look at Hezekiah's prayer. It's back in uh, the early part of the chapter. Uh, this is 2 Kings 19, verses 14 through 19. You can read along on the screen with me. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers, and he read it. So uh, the king of Assyria sent a threatening letter to Hezekiah saying basically like, hey, you're taking a little too long to decide. Don't you be deceived. I will destroy you. You better capitulate to my demands. So Hezekiah gets this letter, and he went up to the temple of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, the angels in heaven, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They've thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. And this, this passage is full of helpful insights on prayer. So, for example, we see Hezekiah deliberately seeking the Lord. He goes to the temple, the dwelling place of God, and he seeks God's insight onto his situation. He's laying out the needs and presenting the requests of his people. He takes the threatening letter and literally lays it out in the temple as if to say to God, like, do you see what I'm up against, God? This is, this is the situation. He's telling the truth about God as well. He says, God, you're bigger than every other God. You, you are over all of the earth. You're not like the king of Assyria. You're, this is true about you. I'm going to rely on that. But he also tells the truth about his situation. God I, I don't know how we can rescue the people of Judah from this situation. We, we have no hope except for you. We need you. And then Hezekiah is boldly asking God to intervene. Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, would you please intervene on behalf of your people? We need you to rescue us. Don't let us be destroyed. And he's also considering God's perspective. This is, this is awesome because he realized it's not just about his nation or the capital city, it's about the reputation of the living God because Judah represents God to the world. And he says, we are your people. You're our God. We need you to come through for us, Yahweh. Well, if we could follow Hezekiah's example with his prayer, man, it would make all the difference in our lives. We, we should be deliberately seeking the Lord when so often we just kind of take a casual stab at prayer. We should be building consistent, helpful prayer practices into our lives even before we ever reach a crisis point. We should regularly be laying out our needs and presenting our requests to God. In Psalm 5, David says, In the morning I lay my requests before you, and I wait expectantly. And Philippians 4, 6 says, Don't be anxious about anything. Instead, present your requests to God. So, we need to present our request to God over and over again. It's also important for us to tell the truth about God when we pray, to confess and remind ourselves that God is not like us. God is powerful. He has infinite resources, and he is ready and willing to intervene in our situations. We also need to 
think about telling the truth about the situation. We need to be honest with ourselves and with him. God, I have no hope in this situation but for you. I, I have no idea how to fix this. I realize I'm the one that screwed up here, God, and I need you to rescue me. We need to boldly ask God to intervene, whether it's for our needs or for someone we care about. We can and we should boldly go before the throne and ask God to enter into the situation and do what only he can do. And lastly, considering God's perspective is really important. We, we may look at the situation and think what is most important is that we get out from underneath the stress or the pressure or the pain that we're suffering. What we need is relief. But what if God is really trying to teach us endurance? What if he's trying to build compassion into us? What if he's trying to help us grow in our dependence upon him? So this is why Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth, Father, as it is in heaven. And he prayed himself the night before he was crucified. Not my will, Father, but yours. Uh, this guy was a hero of mine. His name is Floyd Jennings King, a very dapper dresser. This picture, I think, was probably taken in the 50s. This was my mom's father. And, and this was the only granddad I ever knew. My dad's father passed away before I was born. Uh, he was a, a hero from World War I. He fought, uh, was disabled, had to have a lung removed because of a war wound. Uh, and I only knew that as a little kid because of the way he laughed. Uh, I just thought this was how old guys laughed, but he would go, it's a little bit painful, so bear with me. He would go, <laughs> it was just this wheeze. That was all he could come up with, and it just it was very endearing. Uh, he grew up really poor in a small uh, community. It wasn't even a town in West Virginia. I have his diploma from when he graduated from sixth grade. That was it. That was the extent of, of what you did when you were born in the 1890s. He grew up really poor. So when he got older and he had a series of businesses that he owned, he became a very uh, flashy dresser. He would always wear really fancy shoes because as a kid, he had to wear one pair of shoes for like a couple of years. And hopefully there was a hand-me-down from a brother or a cousin that had a little more growing room. So he would wear, like when I grew up, he was wearing two-toned shoes. They were really, you know, very uh, like, whoa, those are awesome, you know, and he'd wear cool suits. He drove a Cadillac. I mean, this car had fins on it bigger than I was. I swear, that car would probably do 400 miles an hour. I mean, I, I was just convinced as a kid, this, this man walked on water. He was great. He was loving and kind, and I would spend weeks in the summer. I'd go by myself and just hang out with my grandparents. So at the age of nine, when we drove up in the driveway for a visit, and I saw the rescue squad taking him out on a stretcher, it was very disconcerting. That's when I learned what cancer was. And over the next year, watched him in the hospital, out of the hospital, at home, and different scenarios, trying to get treatment, but nothing would stop the growth of this cancer. On July 1st, 1972, he passed away. And because of what he had demonstrated to me as a little kid, his confidence in where he was going to spend eternity, uh, that really resonated with me. He didn't come to Christ until he was in his 50s. He was kind of a late bloomer as a Christian. But it was a very real part of his life. So on the evening that he passed away, I went to vacation Bible school at a little church in Romney, West Virginia. Uh, vacation Bible school was in the basement. And I was a kid that had grown up in church. I knew stories about Jesus. I knew stories from the Bible. But I had never made my own decision about the role he would play in my life. And because of my granddad, 
That night, I prayed a very simple prayer. And I, I remember the guy who led me. His name is Gary Wagoner. And I found out this week he's still alive. I need to go find him and say, thanks, man. I appreciate you. I, I had to admit that I needed forgiveness, even as a 10-year-old kid. And I had to believe that Jesus died in my place and took the punishment that I deserved. And I committed my life as best I could. What does a 10-year-old know, right? But as much as I understood of that, I committed to following after him for every day of my life from then on out. And that, that prayer that I prayed, that commitment I made, 49 years later, I, I still remember it every July 1st. Listen, we prayed for a long time that God would heal my grandfather, that God would give him additional years of life, that God would restore his health and remove the cancer. And it, it may have felt at the time like, wow, God didn't answer our prayer. I'm old enough now. I'm not yet a grandfather. But if you ask me, hey, Alex, if your living or your dying could play a role in one of your grandchildren coming to know Jesus, no question. I would sign up today. So God answered prayer. He just didn't answer it the way that I wanted him to. Um, you know, God answers our prayers. He really does. I think Scripture would say uh, sometimes he doesn't answer the way we want him to. Sometimes he doesn't answer on our timetable. But he definitely answers. So our passage today as we press on in 2 Kings 19 will give us some insight and encouragement about prayer. So it begins with God's answer to Hezekiah's prayer. And I want to walk us through it. And at a couple of points along the way, we'll kind of take a step back and look at some practical takeaways for us. So, first of all, in Hezekiah's, in answering Hezekiah's prayer, God pronounces judgment upon Sennacherib. Sennacherib is the king of Assyria, remember? And so part of God's reply to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah is judgment on this king of Assyria. Then Isaiah, son of Amos, sent a message to Hezekiah. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. So this is God, right? To Hezekiah. I've heard your prayer concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Virgin daughter Zion despises you and mocks you. Daughter Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it you have ridiculed and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. Now remember, the Assyrians had taunted those uh, in Jerusalem, they had suggested like, oh, you guys are so weak. You, we'll, we'll even give you some horses so you can ride them against us. You're just a wimpy, weak adversary, and we will crush you into the dust. But Yahweh, the God of Israel, says, look, my unconquered young daughter, this little girl named Zion, she will kill you. She makes fun of you, king of Assyria. You're not impressive. She mocks you, and she shakes her head at you as you run away. You stupid king. You're not dealing just with King Hezekiah. You have picked a fight with the king of Jerusalem, and that is me, God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel. The passage goes on. By your messengers you have ridiculed the Lord, and you've said, with my many chariots I've ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I've cut down its tallest cedars, the choices of its junipers. I've reached its remotest parts, the finest of its forests. 
I've dug wells in foreign lands and drunk the water there. With the soles of my feet, I've dried up all the streams of Egypt. I don't know if you can hear the sarcasm in God's voice here, but it's like he's saying, wow, Assyria, boy, you, you guys really are super duper powerful and I'm sure it impresses everybody in the king's court. You're really good about bragging about all of your exploits, but have you not heard? Long ago, I ordained it. In days of old, meaning before there was time, before there was anything, I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people, drained of power, are dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows up. He's just saying, look, the only reason you have a name and a reputation is because I ordained it for you. You have no idea, but I am the one that orchestrated all of this. And, and you beat up these other lands, but they were like grass that grows between the cracks on the sidewalk. It looks good for about a week in the spring, and by August it's just brown and dead, and there's nothing to it. That's your power. But I know where you are. And when you come and go and how you rage against me, because you rage against me, and because your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came. In the ancient world, uh, masters would put rings or hooks in the nose of livestock, and with a gentle tug on a rope, you could get a large ox to go exactly where you want it, because the nose takes the lead there. And the Assyrians had the same practice with prisoners of war. They would put rings in their nose, and they would run a rope through it, and one man could lead a whole group of, of prisoners that way. And what God is saying here is, just like a horse is led by a bit in its mouth, or in the same way that you have led prisoners away, I will direct you wherever I want you to go. You're not the boss. I am. And you have no choice to comply. You are going home empty-handed. A few verses later, starting with verse 32, it continues. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter the city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he'll return. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend the city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. So basically, Hezekiah, you don't need to worry. The city is not going to fall. I will save it for the sake of my name and my reputation and because of the covenant I made with King David, your great, 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 great grandfather 300 years ago. Now take a look at this map of the Assyrian Empire. This is a little different than the one that we've looked at in the past. The, the darker green at the top, that was the, that's the heartland of the Assyrian Empire at this time. And the larger, broader light green is the way the Assyrian Empire will spread over 150 years. But do you notice there's a little yellow spot there kind of in the middle? I don't know if you can see it, but that's Judah. So basically, Assyria conquers almost everything in that region of the world except for Judah. Why is that? Because God answers prayer. Here's how we accomplish it. Verse 35. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. 
I mentioned this before, that there is much historical verification of these events in non-biblical history. So Josephus was a Roman historian, uh, and he wrote a massive history of the Jews. He was not a Christian, wasn't a fan of Jesus, but he references this destruction of the Assyrians and his history. And Barossus, a Chaldean historian, references the deaths of 185,000 Assyrians at this time. We don't get a lot of detail here. It's just one verse. We don't know how they died. Was it a plague? Was it hailstone? We have no idea. We're not told that detail. But it does make sense that Sennacherib would withdraw and leave after that kind of experience. So he returns to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Interestingly, in the 1850s, there was a, a clay pillar, probably 18, 20 inches tall, eight-sided, and it was discovered in the city of Nineveh by an archaeologist named Taylor, so it's called Taylor's Prism. And it is uh, an account of Assyrian history written in these clay plates on the eight different sides are the, the, the history of Assyria told in King Sennacherib's words. Now, in many ancient histories, uh, you basically, you take what you accomplished it, uh, you embellish it, you, you don't mention any of the losses or the bad stuff because, you know, you want it to be like this epic tale. So that uh, doesn't surprise us that uh, as we read about other battles, the king of Assyria, you know, he just he destroyed and they had no chance and it was not even work. They just showed up and people ran away from him. He sounds like a brilliant warrior. But interestingly, on this Taylor prism, Sennacherib claims that he trapped King Hezekiah in his capital city like a caged bird. But he says nothing about destroying the city, about taking the city, about occupying the city. And he doesn't mention leaving town and going back to Nineveh. The story concludes several years later when Sennacherib is still in the capital city. Verse 37 says, One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Sheretzer killed him with a sword. And they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Aser Hadan, his son, succeeded him as king. Now, take a look at this. Uh, this is a, a, a carving in stone of Nisroch. Uh, this is the, the ultimate god of the Assyrians. And to me, he looks kind of like the supervillain in a Marvel movie. You know, he's half eagle, half man, and he carries water in that bucket or destruction he can dump out. Um, and yet, even though the king of Assyria was tucked away in the temple of his most powerful god, he was not protected from the hand of Yahweh. He was taken down by his own sons. Look, there are some helpful reminders for us in this passage. First of all, God answers prayer. Uh, Hezekiah's prayer is epic. The stakes are high, and God answers miraculously. And unfortunately, when we pray, let's face it, that's not typically what happens. When God answers our prayers, he generally tends not to answer in a miraculous way. I can't promise you that God will give you a miracle every time you pray. But scripture is clear that he hears our prayers and he answers them. Sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes his answer is no or not yet. And my kids hated it when I would say to them, I don't know, we'll wait and see. But I, I, my own personal experience, I feel like God sometimes says that for us. And we just need to remember that answering prayer, that's God's department. Asking in prayer, that is our department. 
Another is that God is in control. Even when it feels like things are out of control, even when we're overwhelmed and we don't know which way to go, God really is in control. No matter who won or lost the election, no matter what the stock market did last week, no matter what the diagnosis is, God is not going to rip us off or betray us or leave us hanging. That is not his character. Romans 8.28 reminds us that God is working everything together for our good. Even in the tough times, even through the painful experiences, he's moving on our behalf, working for our good, and he will be with us every step of the way. Another great reminder in this passage is that power and success don't last. Now, we understand that when we're thinking about ancient kings and kingdoms, but we tend to overlook it in our own lives. It's all too easy, given where we live, given our neighborhoods, given our jobs, our education, our income. We feel comfortable, confident of our own abilities. We become prideful about what we've accomplished, and we forget that the standard of living we enjoy has nothing to do with us and everything to do with God's blessing. Jesus said, don't pile up treasure for yourself here on earth because it will not last. Instead, be more concerned about cultivating treasure in heaven because it lasts for eternity. And finally, God does what he says he will do. I love that song that we sang just a few minutes ago, Promises. God is faithful, and if he says it, it will happen, whether you see it or not. This is why it's so important for us to learn the promises of Scripture so we know what God has promised, so that we're anchored in calamity, we're held together in seasons of challenge, and we remember that he will not leave us, he will not forsake us, he will not turn away. He's working on our behalf. I mean, his Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine because of his power that's at work within us. So we remember that God does what he says he will do. In the middle of this passage, uh, the tone shifts. And instead of talking about Sennacherib, now God addresses Hezekiah. Verse 29 says, This will be a sign for you, Hezekiah. This year you will eat what grows by itself, and the second year what springs from that. But in the third year sow and reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. So uh, God is giving sort of a special word of encouragement to Hezekiah. He's saying, look, here's how you know I am going to accomplish what I've told you I am going to accomplish. You will have to eat what you can scrounge up right now. I mean, the Assyrians have surrounded your land. They've taken all of the good stuff, so you're just going to have to find whatever grows naturally, and it's going to be that way for a while. You'll have enough, but it will not be plenty this year and next. But by the third year, a better time is coming, and you will be able to leave this city and return to the fields, and you can sow and reap and cultivate, and life will be heading back to normal. He goes on in verse 30, Once more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. So the Assyrians came in, they conquered all of the fortified cities, they devastated most of the nation of Judah as far as they could. But, although the numbers of Judahites had been reduced and their communities had been destroyed, God promises there will be a remnant reestablished, growing deep roots, building resilience, but also bearing visible fruit, prospering, and demonstrating the goodness of Yahweh to the people around them. 
Verse 31 says, For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So the city gates will open, and there will come a time when people can head out back into the countryside. These survivors will once again flourish. And it's all because of God's zealous, passionate love for his people. Not because of their goodness, but because of his greatness. God gives encouragement to King Hezekiah, but there's also encouragement here for us too. So let's remember that God works on his timetable. Earlier uh, in this chapter, in verse 7, that John covered last week, Hezekiah is told by Isaiah, I will send the king of Assyria back to his own land, and there he will be cut down with a sword. So that's the promise from God. Now, we don't know exact dates, but it could be as much as 15 years later that King Sennacherib is killed in the temple of his God by his own sons. So 15 years from the time that Yahweh promised Hezekiah to the fulfillment of the prophecy. God did what he said he would do. Now, God didn't spell all of that out for Hezekiah. didn't need to. But we just need to remember that God works on a different timetable than we do. Uh, I can pull out a tape measure and I can look at 24 inches and I can, I can measure. I could take an object and I look at anything in this span with a tape measure. And then when I'm done, I can put it back in my pocket. And I kind of feel like God is the same way when it comes to time. I feel like God can just pull time out of his pocket and he can spread it out and he can see what happened a year ago, what happened 3,000 years ago, what happened before there was time. And he can kind of look and see what's going to happen 5,000 years from now if he wants to. And then he can roll all of time up in his pocket and put it back in. Maybe he's wearing cargo pants and he's got creation over in this pocket. He's got other worlds that we don't know anything about. He's got unseen things that we know nothing about. But God is not worried about time like us. So we need to calibrate our sense of time with his. Sure, we make the most of every opportunity. But we give God the freedom to answer our prayers on his timeline because we know he is working for our best. And we don't want our impatience to lead us to wrong conclusions about God. That would be foolish. A second encouragement for us is knowing that no matter what's happening, we can grow roots and fruits. No matter how tough things are, how challenging the circumstance, if we walk by faith, we can nourish our relationship with God. Others may not know what's going on with us because it, it's below the surface. It's not visible. But we are deepening our faith and strengthening our foundation. And no matter what's happening to us or going on around us, we can also become more fruitful. That's the part of our relationship with God that's visible to other people, that shows up in the way we handle challenges and conflicts and blessing. It's us choosing to live with generous hearts, blessing other people and pointing them to the goodness of God. There's a final encouragement from Hezekiah's experience. Our hope is in Jesus. And you may be thinking, wait a minute, Jesus was 700 years after Hezekiah. You're getting confused here, Alex. Uh, you're right about the timing, but there is a connection. This idea of a remnant coming out of the house of Judah in verses 30 and 31, that points us forward directly toward Jesus. It was out of this remnant of Judah that Jesus came. And in fact, Hezekiah is mentioned in Matthew 1 in Jesus' family tree. And the phrase, because of the zeal of the Lord Almighty, is noteworthy. 
Isaiah is the only biblical writer to use that phrase. So listen again to verse 31 from our passage. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a bound of survivors, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty. Now listen for that phrase again in Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now, with the benefit of hindsight and going to a lot of Christmas Eve services, we know exactly who Isaiah is talking about, right? We get several glimpses in Isaiah of the Messiah who will one day come. But here we learn that Jesus is from the line of David, just like Hezekiah. He'll be a different kind of king over a different kind of kingdom. He'll rule with peace and justice and righteousness forever and ever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Some of you may uh, be looking at this kind of from the outside in. Uh, maybe you're not yet convinced or you're not sure what you believe about the Bible or Jesus. That's great. We, we want you to wrestle with this and think about it. But here's what this kingdom idea means. If we choose to be a part of God's kingdom here on earth, if we make Jesus the leader in our life, then we get to live under his power and authority here and now. We get to, to have him in charge of our life. We get his protection and his power at work. We get to experience his kingdom here and now. And we get to be with him forever in a kingdom that has no end. I hope this morning that maybe through the course of this week ahead, uh, based on what we've talked about, maybe God will bring something to your heart or to your mind about a way you could refresh your prayer life. For some of us, it might be returning to prayers that we've given up on or stopped praying uh, or backed off of or just kind of stayed away. Sometimes our prayers, you know, we pray about them for years and it feels like God is not hearing and we would rather just not bring it up with God than feel disappointed or frustrated. And we've kind of stepped back from God and said like, you know, yeah, I want to pray about this and I'll pray about my friend, but I, I'm not going to talk to you about my marriage. I'm not going to, I'm tired of asking you to bring my, my child back to you. I, I'm not going to keep asking for freedom from this, this long-term illness that is devastating my body because I, I'm just tired of asking and not getting an answer. So for some of us, maybe we need to return to prayers that we've given up on. Maybe it's being more intentional in praying for others carrying their needs to God. Maybe, you know, it's a different way of doing that, whether it's keeping a notework, notebook uh, of prayer requests or, or carving out specific time in your day. Every day my alarm goes off and I'm going to pray for the people with needs that I know about. Maybe God wants you to grow in the area of praying for your enemies or he desires that you become stronger in the area of confession or submission. Maybe he's giving you an opportunity this summer to experiment with, with different prayer practices than what you've been doing and what you've gotten comfortable with. I feel like there's, there's a whole wide world of prayer out there and, and many of us stand on the edge and we dip our toe in and we splash and 
sit on the side and splash, and you're like, woohoo, this is, this is awesome. And there's a huge blessing of prayer out there that we've never experienced, and God says, dive in. God answers prayer, and we just need to be encouraged and jump in. Uh, one of the opportunities we have this summer is the Sweet Summer of Prayer. Many of you got a flyer. You can learn more about that. Uh, I would just encourage you not, not to sit on the edge, but to dive into prayer. Uh, about 10 days ago, many of you got a text message from Gateway, and it said, how can we be praying for you? If you don't get the text messages, go to mygateway.life and sign up, and we'll send you text messages. Uh, we do that from time to time, and this was really not that much different from some other text messages that we send out. I don't know if it's every month or every six weeks where we say, okay, how can we pray for you? But what was weird uh, that uh, in late June, when most people were thinking, yeah, we're getting back to normal, it's summertime, uh, living is easy, let's go on vacation, uh, traffic's better, like this is an awesome time. In a very short, like within hours, we had more than 50 prayer requests. And they weren't just easy, lightweight stuff. These were, these were life-changing kind of prayer requests. And those prayer requests go to the elders, they go to our prayer team, uh, we take those very seriously, but it reminded us that even in these happy times of summer, there's a lot of serious stuff coming on that's, that's, that's weighing people down. And so this morning, we don't just want to talk about prayer. We don't just want to learn about prayer. I want to give you a few quiet moments to pray. So I'm going to ask you if you would to bow your head. And I want you just silently, you talking to God, we're just going to take a few short moments to pray, and would you lift up your own prayers to God? now with your eyes still closed, I want to ask you to shift the direction of your prayer so that you're lifting up the needs of, of some people in your world. Maybe it's a family member or a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker. Pray for someone else for a moment. Father in heaven, Jehovah, Lord of hosts, God Almighty, we are so grateful that you hear our prayers. Pray that you would forgive us for backing away in certain areas, for choosing to try to handle things on our own rather than and turning to you at the beginning, we tend to wait until things unravel and then we turn to you. 
pray that you would forgive us for neglecting your promises and, and panicking when we really just need to trust you. Thank you, God, that you hear our prayers and you answer in the way that you know is best for us. So we choose to trust you, God. Even on the days when things are not going the way we want to. Even when we, we struggle and it feels like you haven't heard our prayer or you're not giving us the answer we want. We choose to continue to talk to you. To continue to lift our hearts toward you. Knowing that you love us. And you will work for our good. pray that we would grow at being better in lifting up the needs of our brothers and sisters here at Gateway. That we would be better at carrying the needs of our family and friends to you. We want to be a people of prayer. We want to bring you honor and glory, Lord. So I ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.